On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about how Hamilton high school students having their exams canceled this year because of COVID, because of other challenges. No exams for high school students. Is this a good thing? We'll discuss it. We're also going to be chatting about music, specifically a new device that allows you to hear music without earphones or anything else. It puts you in a bubble. It's the most mind-blowing bit of technology. We'll discuss how it's going to change music. And we're going to talk about what happens, what has happened in Toronto with this trial of the guy who drove the van along the sidewalk in Young Street. We're going to talk with a criminal defense lawyer about coming up with a defense because there are people in the autism community who are really upset that the defense that has been presented has been presented. We'll discuss all that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned this week that Hamilton Public High School students will not have exams this year. If you listen closely, you can hear the students in their homes right now cheering wildly at that proposition. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, if they had told me that exams were canceled, uh, I may have learned how to do a back handspring. I'm not sure, but it would have been something like that. Uh, anyway, they have been canceled. They're not going to be writing them. COVID, everything's COVID. Um, anyway, students, instead of writing exams, are going to be graded on the work they've done throughout the year. So, I mean, yes, COVID is the reason, but why specifically was this decision made? Let's bring in the Director of Education for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, Manny Figueredo. Manny, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hi, Do we Scott. have Manny? Hey, there's Manny. How are you, Manny? Thanks for doing this. Uh, Scott, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Well, and, and thank you for doing this. I think this is the second or third or fifth or eighth time you've been on the station today. So yeah, we're going to have to start paying you a salary you're on here so much, but I do appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. What led, what led to this? I mean, I know COVID is behind it, but what really led to the decision that exams were not going to be happening this year? Yeah, there were quite a few factors. Um, number one is we were hearing some of our, our students in terms of their concern. And one of the concerns they had as you probably uh, may know, a lot of the boards, um, including the Catholic board and other boards, they had already made that decision earlier. Now, I know why they made that decision earlier was because their model, uh, their secondary model they're in, you know, some boards are doing one course at a time, what they call Octmester, and some boards are doing two courses like Quad, so they had to make a decision earlier. We always had in our work plan to review this in November. So our student trustees, number one, brought some concerns to us saying, hey, you know, we're a little worried around whether there'll be an, you know, whether we're all going to be measured across the province and benchmarked the same way as we're looking at post-secondary applications, because we're hearing, you know, boards like Halton and, and the Catholic Board and, and Waterloo, they're not doing final exams. So, you know, we're a little concerned. The second thing that came up is in our models, the students are doing quite a big portion online um, and not every course, when the exam period comes at the end of the semester, only one of those courses will actually be face-to-face. -face. There was quite a bit of concern for students to say, you know, being in a virtual environment in my final exam versus being in a, in a space where, uh, uh, in a physical space, is creating a bit more anxiety. So we then reviewed that, and I just wanted to buy clarity on that. Is <laughs> There are a lot of teachers, even to date, with the ministry's assessment policy, they call it growing success, that 30% of a, of a what they call traditional exam, what we used to. Many teachers have already moved away from that and do a, a culminating activity, some kind of activity a that is a culmination of, of the outcomes they're supposed to learn in that course for the year. So many of the students are already 
um, have adapted that and experiencing that. And many students have said, what's the best way for us to demonstrate our learning? And sometimes in the, in the traditional final exam uh, is not the best way for me to demonstrate my learning, especially under um, what they said under a time where many students are anxious and other boards have moved away from them already. So that's what really was the driver behind our decision. Can you... Can you really get a sense? Well, let me back up for a second. Are you concerned though about this? Because this will be two consecutive semesters now that students will not have final exams because of course the spring semester essentially ground to a halt. This will be for all intents and purposes now a full year that high school students will not have to write a final exam. Does that concern you? You know, Scott, what really, it doesn't concern me. Um, what concerns me the most is that students are able to demonstrate their learning and engaged in the learning right now. So, you know, the traditional final exam, like I said, many of our educators have moved away from that mode of demonstrating your learning because it doesn't work for many of the students. Now I've heard from parents who are very, who are concerned the other way to say, Hey, they don't have final exams and they're going to post-secondary. Are they going to be prepared? Uh, you know, as, as a father with two students in university, you know, I've challenged, Prior to COVID-19, I've challenged uh, our post-secondary to think about what's the best way for students to actually demonstrate their learning. Is it project-based? Different ways that students can demonstrate it. Um, so I- I'm not concerned. What we're not saying is that 30% doesn't count. What we are saying that the 30%, there's different ways that our teachers are going to provide projects, assessments to demonstrate that they have acquired the knowledge and skills of that course, but it won't be in the traditional final exam mode. Could we then see, from what I'm hearing, that if we are saying exams are not necessi- not necessary, not necessarily required, could we see the board at some point moving to no exams and just going with the final project down the road? You know, it's, I'm glad you raised it. It's a great debate to have. Um, the ministry's again growing success policy, which is around assessment, evaluation, reporting. We've really pushed our educators, who've done an incredible job, to think about look at your students' needs. What's the best way for students to demonstrate their learning and to actually show in the 21st century that they can actually apply the knowledge and demonstrate the skills? Some of the traditional exams really are about memorization, about, I call it a knowledge dump. And, you know, I can have a philosophical debate with many people about that, but as we look at our Mohawk College, they've moved away uh, uh, in terms of their traditional sort of exams to a lot of culminating activities, project-based learning for students to demonstrate their learning in a different way. So I think it's a great conversation as we continue to learn. And we think about from this pandemic, are there some learnings that can come from this that we should be looking at that actually could sort of improve student uh, achievement, student well-being moving forward. I wanted to play you a clip. Um, a couple of weeks ago when some of the other school boards, you're not the first, by the way, for people who are just tuning in, a number of other school boards were doing this, were canceling exams and saying, we're not going to have this. Uh, we had education consultant, um, Paul Bennett, on the show to talk about the idea. I want you to take a listen to what he had to say and tell me where you disagree with him, because I'm guessing you're probably going to disagree. Here's what he had to say good idea to get rid of exams? No, it's a poor idea. It's an expedient decision or series of decisions. These are not wise decisions when it comes to student assessment policy, reliability, and validity. 
In fact, suspending exams um, is tantamount to dissolving assessment benchmarks, and it really smacks of um, not the new pedagogy of COVID, but rather the old pedagogy of progressive education morass. Uh, Manny, uh, that's pretty clear where he stands on this. Obviously, you must disagree because you've made this decision. Where, where is he not right? Well, I'll tell you where I, where I disagree. I'll give you a, a concrete example. Today, I was at Cyril McNabb, uh, and I spoke to four students, and I actually paused in the hallway to ask them what they thought about the decision to cancel exams. And in a, unequivocally, here's what the four of them said. Oh, it's going to be tougher because exams was actually a little easier to prepare for. And this, this, so when I asked them to, to elaborate a bit more, this is what they said. And this is, this is my, my point around application of knowledge. Because an exam I can prepare, and if I can memorize well, I can then regurgitate and be assessed on that. I hear what your, 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 the critic says around being able to benchmark. But when we think about what uh, precipitates new behavior is, is learning. So... We think about how do we ensure that students are able to apply in real-life situations the knowledge uh, versus uh, memorization. And the other piece I'll challenge is with traditional exams, what's the origin of them? Who do they actually benefit and who do they actually exclude when we try to standardize an assessment and make all students demonstrate their learning in the same way? Point and example, we see a lot of our design and tech, technology programs, who have moved away from uh, traditional exams and the students are doing project-based, applying their knowledge and demonstrating through, through you know, uh, performance-based uh, presentations, creating products. Um, so we're seeing kids more engaged in that type of learning. Is it more difficult to benchmark that? Absolutely. But I need to ask is in traditional exams, who, who's benefiting them? Who's being, who's being excluded, and, our, and how do we differentiate not just our instruction, but differentiate our assessment so students have a different way to demonstrate their learning and apply their skills. And when I talk to students, they say, yes, yeah, some of these culminating activities, project-based, are actually more challenging to do and require a lot more time and energy to do. So um, I can see from a benchmark piece, but I would challenge around from an equity piece who does it benefit and who does it exclude? There does seem to be, though, and, and I don't know whether I agree, I don't know if you agree, there seems to be a body of research out there that says the concern around the idea of teacher assessment as the final grade um, is that there is going to be natural human bias involved. If a teacher has had difficulties with a student or some other things, you could naturally, that could impact on what the grade is. Is that a concern? Yeah, so I guess, you know, what we hear in our professions around what does that professional judgment look like, right? What's the objectivity and subjectivity? So if I ran it, if I do an exam and it's 100 multiple choice and I run it through a Scantron, there's, there's, no, um, there's no subjectivity. It's completely objective. My challenge back is what did we just learn around, around students learning? What, what did we just measure? Um, so I think when you look at the Ontario curriculum, you know, that, that's why there's an achievement chart. That's why there's clear criteria described and, uh, for, for each level of achievement and for the curriculum expectations. And our, and our Ontario curriculum is, you know, quite robust and clear in terms of that criteria. 
Um, so, yeah, so I guess the challenge around professional judgment, around objectivity and subjectivity um, is, a, is, a part, is an important piece to debate. Um, um, but I would challenge, but I would challenge that uh, the downside of traditional type of standardized exams and whatnot is that it doesn't actually measure application of skills. It actually measures more which students are more proficient in memorizing and regurgitating. We are really short on time, unfortunately. So very quickly, I know or I read that the grade 10 provincial literary t literacy test is being put off. Uh, the grade 9 EQAO math exam, does it still stand for now? Yeah, so the ministry has given us a direction that the literacy test, um, they have actually um, said it's not a requirement for this year's graduation. The EQAO 9, they are doing a field test. So our board will be doing some field testing around the grade 9 EQAO this January. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A story out today. Now, it's based out of the UK, but I have no reason to believe that the same thing wouldn't exist here because COVID is kind of ruining everything. 85% apparently of musicians, and we're not talking about the superstars that you buy a million albums of. We're talking about the people who are the working musicians. 85% have basically had their income completely devastated by COVID. D does that ring true to you? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's actually even worse here because we're dealing with um, a very, very large landmass of a country in Canada with pretty bad weather in terms of traveling in your van across the country during the winter months. Um, I've seen a number of reports saying that somewhere in the neighborhood of 91% of all music venues across this country will go under if they're not operating at a full capacity by March 2021. And that's a really scary thought because it's not just the music venues that are suffering. It's obviously the bars and restaurants and the hotels and the parking and the food and the alcohol companies and uh, the people that- And the musicians. Places. Yeah, the sound people, the lighting, but the musicians as well. Right now, um, it takes on average 75 to 80 million streams on Spotify for an artist to reach- um, poverty line in Canada. That's a lot of streams. So a lot of musicians were relying on those weekend gigs and touring in order to just make a decent income. Now, I know nothing is guaranteed in life. Uh, I know there are a lot of businesses hurting, but the music industry was the first one to be shut down during COVID and it's going to be the last one to come up again. And this is some real financial straits that these artists are going to be in. And I wonder, I mean, look, not everybody starts, not everybody starts as Justin Bieber. They're not found on YouTube and turn into a world superstar overnight. I mean, most of these people, most of the big bands have grinded ground, worked hard, let's put it that way, for a long time, and then they get discovered. How many of those bands are we, that might be out there that could be fantastic, are we never going to hear about because they say, forget it, I just got to give up and go find something else? It's, it's, it's not even a number that I want to think about because I think you're exactly right. I think a lot of these artists that are going to um, have to start making some hard choices in December leading up to the new year, um, if Hamilton and Toronto and other major cities are still stuck in stage two, which I have no reason to believe that we're going to get out of it. But they're going to have to make a decision not only for themselves, but their sanity in doing something that mm. they love to do um, that they're not going to be able to get to do it. And it's painful because the live streams are nice, 
there's just a stopgap. And after a while, it gets a little bit depressing performing on a screen with no audience participation because you can't see and hear them. There's a reason why live music is so great. It's part of a community. We're all in the same place together, hanging out, enjoying that time. When that's taken away, it just becomes that much more depressing of what we're all going through without, without music around. There was a time when if you wanted to listen on headphones to your music, you had giant like airport runway type headphones with a swirly, curly wire that went to your boom box. And then we got the Walkman and they became the little foam things. And then they've moved around. We've had bigger headphones, little headphones. Now we've got the little tiny Bluetooth earbuds, but Eric, but we now learn that there is a product called the Sound Beamer. I don't know if anyone's heard of this that I saw something on the other day where you sit in, it directs music to you. You have no earphones in, you're in a sound bubble. It sounds like really weird, really Star Trek-y, but no one else can hear the music except for you. But apparently it is so full and so immersive that the people who are on videos watching this say it's the most incredible thing they'd ever heard. I don't know if you've heard of this, but is this going to be the thing that becomes the thing now for listening to music? You know what, Scott? Next, you're going to tell me that there were Christmas songs for dogs. I, <laughs> I, I, I can't... Look, when, when I first heard about this, I swear to you, I first made sure I wasn't reading The Onion. And me too. And then I checked the date for April Fool's. I me can't too. believe that this exists. It is... They send audio through ultrasonic waves to create sound pockets around your ear. You can hear the music in stereo or 3D audio, but nobody else around you can hear it. If I have this, Scott, I may never talk to another human being ever again. <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine that we are now in the year 3000 based on this. It, it, it's, just, it's astounding to me. It's using artificial intelligence. It's using a tad of virtual reality. It's not even a Sony or Apple product. It's actually an Israeli company that has invented this. Um, this could be the start that completely changes sound and the way that we know it. It could change people that are hearing impaired or hard of hearing or completely deaf to suddenly realize that they could now hear things in a whole new way. It's it's mind-blowing what this company is thinking of doing. And apparently it's working well. Well, okay, so here's the thing. I did all those same things. I thought it was a gag at first, or I thought it was made up or whatever. And I'm still, I mean, all we can go by is people saying, oh yeah, I'm listening to it. It could still be a case of the emperor has no clothes where they're just telling us this is what you're hearing and it's really not real. But everything seems to suggest that it is. And the, the interesting part about this is right around the same time that this came out, Elon Musk, everyone knows who he is now, had just announced that they're going to have a brain chip that could allow you to yeah. hear music with. Well, this seems to completely pull the wool out from under that one, because who wants to have a chip implanted in their brain if they can just sit in a bubble? Um, <laughs> I like it when people say, I don't want a chip in my brain as they carry around their phone tracking every single thing that they do. Um, <laughs> yeah. <being> very <laughs> But yeah, you know, it, the, the chip in the brain thing, that's a little bit too far gone. But it's products like this that can literally put massive companies out of business. It could overnight change 
um, and demolished the headphone company, the earpod company, the airpod divisions of Apple. There may not have any use to stick anything in your ear anymore or having them fall out when you're exercising or wearing like a 15 pound set of headphones on your head for best quality sound. It's supposed to come out in December 21. If I'm Sony or Apple or any one of those companies, I'm buying this company right now. I'm not even sure if I want to make this. I would probably want to put them out of business so that I can keep selling my headphones. I, the, the one thing about it that I wondered, and, and you know, I was reading another piece totally unrelated, um, about, and I hadn't realized this. I didn't realize that a lot of music that is being streamed right now is set up or has a smaller file so that the sound quality is not perfect, that the, yeah. the, the, the file size is reduced. And so the real audio files who are the real sticklers say, oh no, streaming music stinks. I, I've never frankly heard a difference, but I don't pretend to be one of those people who is an audiophile. But I'm wondering if even those with the most elitist tastes in listening and sound quality will be satisfied by this because if it is you're right this could completely wipe out everything else yeah if you're an audiophile and you've spent more than three thousand dollars on your stereo system and i know quite a bit of people that do they're going to hate this and they'll never use it ever again but you're right when you listen to something on itunes or um or through spotify or or any one of the streaming services that sound is compressed almost to a three megabyte file um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's about the same size of a photo, for instance, that you put on Facebook. Audio file files are about 250 megs each. They're, the wave files, they're called, and there's no compression. The audio files want directly from, from, the, um, from the recording studio to the first generation mastering on the vinyl record, and that's it, with no loss of reproduction whatsoever. By the time that you start listening to it on your you know, look, I, I'm to blame for this too. I have really crappy speakers on my stereo because it's connected to my computer. So I don't want to spend that much money on it. Um, you know, I'm too busy buying Christmas music for my dog. But other than that, <laughs> the, the, the audio files are not going to buy into this at all. They're, they're just going to want a little bit of a warm sound because it's just going to be, um, I mean, even for an album, it's it, it's almost it's almost going to be impossible to get that full on classical you know heavy duty sound in one of these things. So I think for a while though, but I don't know. But you know what? For fun, I think everybody should just go into one of those rooms that are available at stereo yes, stores and just try and it. Go put on and go put on your favorite song in a ten thousand dollars stereo system. You will feel bad going home that that you know that you're not the owner of this radio station. Yes, that I'm that I'm listening in the shower on my fourteen dollar shower speaker that uh, sounds like it was made from parts left over from a discarded muffler. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. There is a trial going on in Toronto right now. It's for the guy who drove that van down Young Street, running people over on the sidewalk a few years ago, killing a whole bunch of people. It was a it was a horrendous event. It was a terrible moment. Um, and you know, that trial, because of what happened, it was very public. It was, I mean, very public. It was very highly pop, uh, publicized. It was always going to be a sensational trial since it was not only that, but it was going to combine domestic terrorism and incel and hatred of women and a number of other factors, all that, you know, we're just going to grab people's attention. There was no question. Well, throw into this mix now something that his lawyers have raised which has proven to be rather inflammatory. 
they have said, part of the defense here is they've said he knew what he was doing, but couldn't really understand the wrongness of his actions because of his autism. People in the autism community have not surprisingly gone into a bit of a rage about this saying, look, you're now blaming us or saying that what we have somehow is going to make you a psychopathic killer. And that's not at all. They say what autism is. Nonetheless, that's what's being brought forward. I want to bring Jamie Stevenson into the conversation. She is a lawyer in town. She's president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Jamie, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me again. Uh, listen, I, I, we're not going to talk specifically about the details of this particular case because you're not involved with this case and, you know, there's a lot of nuance and stuff. But I want to talk more generally just about a lawyer's responsibility and position and what's going on behind the scenes when they're crafting a defense. And when you are dealing with someone, whether it's for murder or any other thing, what are the obligations on you as a criminal lawyer before introducing a defense of any kind. Do you have to believe that that defense is true? We definitely don't have to necessarily believe that a defense is true. And I've said this many times. My role as a defense lawyer and a lawyer in general is not to believe or disbelieve what I'm being told. But two things are important to remember. First of all, as a lawyer, you certainly cannot call evidence that you know is not true. So if I know something not to be true in terms of factually and my client is saying, no, you would need to put this forward, that puts me in a conflict because I can't put that forward to the court because I know that it's not true. Another thing, however, is that I can, if I can prove that something is true or I can support what my client is telling me, for example, with an assessment, with a psychological assessment, with a medical assessment, then that's something I need to explore every avenue available to my client or else I'm not representing my client to my fullest ability. Okay, so you don't have to believe that it's true. You then, though, have to believe that it could be true. Right. So it's a very fine line, and obviously there's there's a very discrete, discrete distinction, but the major point is that if my client has told me something entirely different and then they're changing their story, I can't then put that original thing that they've told me as a defense because that would be improper. That would be breaching my rules of professional conduct. But that being said, if they're putting forward the defense, even if it seems a bit shaky, but I can't say... It's not my job. That's the job of the judge and the jury to decide whether it's a viable defense. So there's a difference between a viable defense and putting something forward that you know is factually inaccurate. That's a very fine distinction. It's an important distinction as a defense lawyer. Okay, so anyone who's watched any kind of criminal trials, whether in court or even on TV, go back to the O.J. Simpson trial or whatever you want, if that's your baseline for understanding the criminal justice system, um, we have seen many, many times, in many cases, that a lawyer, that someone can find an expert who will back your position in almost anything. I, I don't even think there's an argument against that. You can, you end up as a result in court, you can get conflicting expert testimony with two quote, quote, experts saying the completely opposite to each other about a particular person. So when you're looking as a lawyer, when you are looking for an expert, your, your client says, this is some condition I have. When you're looking for an expert, do you usually tell them 
what they are looking for at first? Or do you just give them the case and say, you tell me what you see here? Well, again, you'd want to do your research. You want to do your research in relation to the expert that you're seeking out. You don't just call up any random expert. First of all, you want to find someone that specializes in the area that you're looking at. And second of all, you want to either by your own experience or through colleagues or through information that you've garnered uh, in your role as a defense lawyer, you want to find someone that will understand the defense that you're putting forward and not necessarily that they're just going to say what you want them to say, but you also have to do a certain amount of research to determine, again, the viability of an expert coming to that conclusion. The advantage that the defense has is that if I go to an expert and I obtain an opinion that does not support what my client has said, the good news is I'm not, I'm not obliged to disclose that to the crown or the court. However, I can't then go down that same road and say, well, I know this expert has said this is not to be true, but I'm still going to put it forward. I can potentially go and seek a second opinion, just like anyone can, just like the crown's expert the crown can in terms of finding their experts if they don't have the information that they're seeking you can get another opinion but you still can't put something forward that you know not to be true well and the reason i ask i mean obviously there's a bunch of reasons but one of them i specifically remember and i'm sure you probably do too um back in the first Guy paul moran trial he's back in the news lately when they've discovered now the the real killer of christine jessup but anyway in his first trial Clayton Ruby, who was his lawyer, put two experts on the stand who testified that Guy Paul Moran was schizophrenic, which by most accounts, or even by Guy Paul Moran's own account, he wasn't. But you can always find someone, it seems, who will, if you want to find someone, you could find an expert who will say what you want them to say. I mean, it, it, I'm not necessarily suggesting that the lawyers are being unethical. I'm saying your client says, I am this. It's not hard to find someone who will bolster that. Right, and that's the problem with a lot of expert opinions is they're subjective. That's, and that's the difficulty. And again, it comes back to the role of the judge and the jury. The judge in explaining the law and the jury in terms of interpreting the law and applying the law, that's, that's their role, to, to sift through the expert opinions, including the contradicting opinions that we often find in courts, and determining what, is, what they find to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt at the end of the day. There are, and and we've heard this even today um, here on the station, I know Scott Thompson was talking about it earlier, we've heard some autism activists and people in the autism community say, you bring forward this kind of defense, this is going to negatively affect those on the spectrum. Should any lawyer who is working for someone and in the middle of a trial be concerned with spin-off impacts of a defense that might occur outside the courtroom? Unfortunately, our role is to our client first and foremost. So although sometimes there are corollary impacts of putting a certain defense forward, which is essentially why uh, Autism Canada is concerned about the defense that's being put forward, uh, although appreciating those concerns, the defense lawyer's role is primary is, is to their clients. So they can't be concerned with the corollary effects if they're putting forward a viable defense with a viable expert report and expert testimony. How far does that go? Because there are certainly some defenses that you could try to put up that would be so far now um, out of what 
or it would be so far into what might cause great problem outside the courtroom. One of the things I think now in Canada, and maybe it's the States, but help me out here. We can no longer in this country um, grill a woman who is a witness or is a victim in a sexual assault case about her sexual activity, her sexual past, correct? That's, that's been taken off the table. Am I right? Correct. There have been a lot of changes in the criminal code, uh, particularly after, and I'm not looking to rehash that trial, but particularly after the Gomeshi trial in relation right. to what can be asked and what evidence can be led in relation to sexual assault allegations. That's that's 100% correct. Uh, but when you kind of circle back, again, and I don't mean to keep putting it off to it's the judge's problem, it's not the judge's problem, but again, our job is to put it out there and it's the judge and jury's role to determine whether it's reasonable, whether it's logical, and whether it does, in fact, give rise to a defense. Because at the end of the day, if we put forward a defense that the judge and jury say, no, that's not reasonable, that's not logical, and they ex- essentially rebuke the defense, then realistically, uh, in the grand scheme, there's no damage done because, yes, we've put that defense forward, but it hasn't been successful. So we've re- I've represented my client to my be- the best of my ability to the fullest extent, uh, and I've raised every defense that my client has uh, offered me, and yet the judge and jury have made their decision based on what they find to be reasonable and logical, and that's the whole pur- purpose of having that arbiter of the facts. I bet I know what your answer to this is going to be, but should there in certain cases be repercussions for raising a defense that by the time you have sorted through all the evidence looks to be completely without much merit, but it was just thrown out there, but could have implications for other people. Should there be something that happens to a lawyer in that case? I think that you probably guessed my answer correctly. And that is that, uh, no, there shouldn't be repercussions. If you've, if you've sought an opinion and if you've received an opinion that supports the defense that you're putting forward, then you put that defense forward and there should be no repercussions, even if it's ultimately found uh, not to be a viable defense. And even if it has repercussions uh, for others in the, on, a, on a greater scale. A lot of what we've talked about so far, Jamie, has been, I mean, it's, it's in, it, it happens in practice, but a lot of it is theoretical about whether you should or shouldn't. Let's go to the, the real tangible, the practical side. Do lawyers, have you ever hear about lawyers who do pay a price for either representing the quote, quote, wrong person or putting forward an unpopular defense? Do they, outside the courtroom, after the trial, do they pay a price for that? Well, there's always there's always an issue with public opinion, and I've always found criminal defense law to be very much a a public opinion based uh, role. And so, certainly on a personal level, uh, you can receive some scrutiny uh, if you have sort of a history or a habit or a pattern of putting forward these non-viable defenses, the the judiciary takes notice of it, and perhaps you become a lawyer that's not taken as seriously. Uh, so that's always a concern. So you want to, again, you're ob- you will have to balance your obligation of putting forward uh, every defense available to your client with not sort of, to be quite blunt about it, not making yourself look stupid. 
Um, mm. So there's there's that balancing act, and and that can certainly be a corollary effect. But but our concern again, it's not my concern what the public thinks of me personally or the defenses that I'm putting forward. If I'm doing the job that I'm being uh, that I'm responsible for doing as a lawyer and as the oath that I took as a lawyer, then what the public thinks of that, unfortunately, is not something that I can be concerned about. And if I'm more concerned about that than I am about my client, then that's a whole other issue. And that's not mm. the right way to approach a case either. Yeah, because I was wondering this today. I, I started to think, like, I don't know nearly enough about autism to take a edu- an educated position on this one. But everything I'm reading from those who are in the community are saying, no, no, this is being misrepresented. I can't speak to that. I don't know. But if this defense lawyer, if this works in this defense lawyer, if he is able to find him not guilty by, you know, what's our, what's our proper terminology? Not, we don't have by reason of insanity here. It's not guilty. What, what is the terminology for this? Not criminally responsible. Thank not you. Responsible. Yeah. So if that, if, if he arrives at a not criminally responsible verdict, uh, I'm just wondering if this lawyer ends up wearing unbelievable criticism for this, or if it's simply a great bit of lawyering that he just did his job. I would say the lawyer did his job, and he might again receive some some pushback uh, from the community. And I, I too, am not uh, versed enough in autism to make any type of opinion one way or another. But again, this isn't just a lawyer throwing things up to see what sticks. This lawyer has done their due diligence. They have the expert report. They they have the assessment. They're calling the evidence. This lawyer is not simply just randomly saying, well, I think it's because of this, they, they have the support for the defense that they're putting forward. And again, it certainly sets a very uh, interesting, if I can use that word, precedent, if it is a successful defense. But again, that lawyer is, is doing their job and they're doing it well and they're putting forward and representing their client to the best of their ability. So any personal fee, any push, personal pushback is unfair to that lawyer because that's, that's their job. It's just as it's the same situation where a lot of lawyers uh, receive pushback depending on if they take a shocking case. This is a shocking case, as you said. Uh, a lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people were injured, so and it created a lot of uh, public attention. And so the lawyer walks into the courtroom not being incredibly popular, having decided to take on this particular client. And they're becoming even more unpopular by putting forward this defense, which is giving rise to, again, some concerns from the autism community. And they're entitled to those concerns, absolutely, 100%. But this lawyer also has an, opportu- has an obligation to do their job. And this accused person has a right to be represented. And so when you look at, again, you have to balance that the accused rights with the public and this accused needs a fair trial and this accused will get a fair trial only by his lawyer representing him to the fullest ability. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.